Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're watching this edition of Hypnosis Week. Uh, again, it's me, Alex Williams-Smith, better known to many of you as Jonathan Royal, the British bad boy of hypnosis. Although the way these interviews have been going over the weeks, uh, I might be losing that uh, dub title soon. Who knows? Uh, you can check out me on my website, magicalguru.com. That's all I'm going to say about me because this is about the guests we get each week. And this week, I'm very lucky to have on the show a gentleman who in 2019, and just to put that in perspective, if you're finding this video in years to come, uh, we're recording this on the 16th of January 2020. In 2019, the gentleman I'm about to introduce you to uh, won a uh, Pride of Essex Award for his work with adults and children with anxiety using his uh, own method which he calls the still method which we will of course be talking about during this interview and in 2019 he was named on the disability power list as one of the most influential disabled people in the UK so I'd like to welcome to the show Mr Stuart Thompson good day to you sir thank you for that very grand introduction I like that well it's all true yeah, I guess so. So go on, let's start right at the beginning. Obviously, within that, we may have given people a clue because you tend to get put on the disability power list if, if you've done something of note and you're what people perceive as. And I'm using that word perceive as not to be flippant, but uh, what people perceive as being disabled. Yeah. So can you perhaps tell the viewers in what way you are perceived and labelled um, and I'm saying that because I, I, my personal belief is that all of us in some way are disabled. Yeah. Uh, um, but in what way are you perceived and labelled to be disabled and what did they put you on the power list for? Okay, I've got um, a disease, if you want to call it a disease, called brittle bone disease or osteogenesis okay. imperfecta, which means that basically I can break my bones incredibly easily. So as a child, that could be something as small as sneezing or being picked up in the wrong way or coughing um but it also means i'm very very little so um i know you've got a circus background alex but i'm still probably one of the smallest people you know um and that's pretty much yeah yeah and that and i think that gives me a, a bit of an edge really because it makes me um memorable but it also means that there's an honesty there that when i come to meet clients and particularly children and come in there with an honesty that says, look, I, I'm not telling you that life is perfect all the time and that you're always going to have to face some sort of challenge to get through, but it's never insurmountable and there's always a way through it. And actually, it gives you an edge and gives you something different that you can present to people. See, I love the fact that's very positive. I've dealt with, um, two, I'm trying to think in my head, about three mentoring clients in the past who, who had different disabilities and I was trying to help them to grow their business and I told them look you, you, you people are going to notice you're disabled yeah. generally speaking they're going to notice yeah. so why not you know make a, a, a feature of it and you know hit it head on as it were and I don't know if it's still available but at the time I went look this domain name, disabledhypnotist.com, is available. You, you should buy it, and they didn't. I think, I think it has actually gone now, but... I think there's a reluctance in people to... Um, people often said people want to prove themselves, and they think that the way you can prove yourself is being more like someone that isn't disabled. But for me, that's dishonest, isn't it? We have to accept who we are and bring our experience to the table. And yeah. once you do that, then it means that you've got total honesty with a client, but also you, you've got um, even a unique selling point. You know, you've got something about you that differentiates from the general public. Yeah, precisely. And there is the argument, well, it's my argument, I don't know if it's anyone else's, that I think to some degree, by dictionary definition, not necessarily by mass populist perception, but by dictionary definition, I believe that we are all, to some degree, disabled. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the term dis disabled for me means that you are facing challenges that the world isn't quite set up for the way that you, for the person that you are. So, you know, 
Um, I'm disabled by the fact that, you know, if I want a tin of beans, it could be on a much higher shelf than I'd like it to be. Or yeah. I'm disabled by the fact that not every shop I want to go in or every pub has um, has a ramp or has too many steps. And we're all disadvantaged in some way, you know, whether it's socioeconomically or personally, everybody's facing ways that the world isn't quite right for them. And I think um, we're at a time when people need to be as honest as possible about that. Excellent. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, there's two there's two main things that jump out at me uh, when I look around the Internet, and that's uh, that you've got two main sort of techniques that you've formulated for, through all your experience. One is the Thompson method for pain control and the other is the still method. So yeah. let's start with the Thompson method for pain control. How does that, because obviously this target audience for this show is fellow therapist in the industry and stuff. How how does that stand apart from, you know, the other approaches out there? I think when I look at a lot of pain control methods, and not all of them by any means, there are some really good ones out there. Um, and there's some big names in pain that are doing some great stuff. But a lot of them feel a little bit like Benny Hinn, you know, the sort of spiritual healing. And you come out of your session and, oh, God, my, you know, my pain that's been with me for 20 years is gone, I'm elated, I walked away, and then they're back to where they were two days, three days down the line, and as someone that's experienced real pain, so, you know, if you, if you break your leg, it kind of hurts, yeah. I, I needed, and, you know, having a mortgage and having kids to pay for, what I can't afford to do is be off work very often, so I needed to look at pain in a different way, and look at how it really impacts people. Mm -hmm. So the story I was told that brought me to the Thompson method was I remember one day looking at my um, my child was three at the time and she hurt her ankle and we thought she'd broken it. She went to the hospital and they weren't sure. And I watched her how she dealt with that. So every time she put weight in it, she cried. But mm -hmm. while she was in the waiting room, she played with Lego and didn't seem to care. And then when she got home, she would sit on the sofa. But she didn't really seem to care about it. But actually, an adult with that pain would be a lot more distressed. And it isn't. You know, we, we can often say, well, children don't feel pain in the same way. It isn't that. It's the fact that there is a, a social impact with pain as well. So if you and I, you or I was to be injured tomorrow, yeah. you'd be thinking, am I going to get to work tomorrow? Who's going to take the kids to school? How am I going to pay the mortgage? Et cetera, et cetera. So the pain intensifies because of the emotional burden that goes with it. So yeah. when I was looking at the Thompson method, it really was about helping people who'd had pain for a long time deal with the emotional stuff that went with that as well. So for many of them, it's about the fact that they'd had to lose careers or they'd lost status or they'd had to give up on dreams. You know, their ontology, the way they see the world was completely affected by the pain. And they, instead of identifying as, you know, Fred, the, the accountant, they were identifying as Fred, the person with chronic pain. Um, so for the, the Thompson method for me, whilst it is, does include some great stuff about getting rid of pain and how to control it, it really is about empowering the individual as well and getting them to see that there is life beyond it and uh, dealing with the emotional and personal stuff that comes with being in pain as well. And I think that's where my own experience has been valuable because for me, that's the hardest bit of being in pain, knowing the impact. Well, obviously, you, you have a unique insight. Um, that, yeah, most people, I imagine you probably had more broken bones than the average individual would ever contemplate having. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say probably. I'm, I always flippantly say I've broken every bone in my body at some point. Um, I'm sure there's one left over I haven't done yet. But <laughs> um, there's, there's definitely, it definitely gives you a different insight. But it also gives me an insight into working with anxiety and all those things because I know how it is to, to, to carry around the fear because... Um, there's definitely been times in my life where I've been injured or had an accident and it's led me to feeling afraid of doing things again. You know, mm. that if I um, was injured in a particular way, then there's going to be a sort of reticence, a worry that I'm going to do that injury again and then that's going to impact on my confidence in those situations. So there definitely is a, a different mindset that comes from Some that. of these questions are going to start sounding like I'm purposely trying to be controversial. 
And maybe at an unconscious level, I am trying to be. Maybe. But they are genuine, sincere questions. So, I mean, my next one would be, in that basis, uh, how important do you think it is for a therapist to have had personal experience that they can directly relate to in order to be able to help the client rather than just having learned some technique from somebody? It's a $64,000 question, isn't it? And it goes back to when I was trained to be a social worker. Can you come in at 18, fresh-faced and... Mm. um, and, and understand the impact on people's lives. I think having experiences and, and seeing the world and experience difficulties means that you can be more creative in your empathy. So to say to somebody that's awful is very different to actually saying, oh God, I can remember how it feels to feel like that. Yeah. But by the same token, everybody's experience of the world is different. So you and I might jam our finger in a door tomorrow and we both might feel it and experience it in very different ways. So there'll be an arrow there, wouldn't there, if I said, oh, yeah. yeah, I know what it's like to be in any pain or to have anything because I, I've lived it. So that I think there's a, a fine line to be walked between the two. I sometimes look at some people doing work with people, and I think they can be too flippant because I think they've maybe not experienced or seen it or seen the impact of it. And that's where you get to that sort of Benny Hinn thing that I was mm-hmm. talking about where people instantly want to blame all pain on um you know uh, psychological things that can be overcome and that and that's where i get that nervousness with that sort of thing yeah slightly controversial i'm not going to mention names um because this kind of is a generalized thing anyway so it isn't really pointing the finger although it appears to be there are numerous pain control methods out there in fact it's for the past few years it's been something of a uh, almost flavor of the month oh you've got to learn this new method and, uh, and stuff and a lot of them proclaim that come in at the session and boom your long-term pain has gone in next to no time and will never bother you um ever again i personally and I suspect, based on what you've said so far, you'll probably agree with this, well, you kind of already have done, um, think that to a degree, that is bullshit. That, yes, the people may go in, they may, in that moment, believe that their pain's gone. They may leave, and even weeks later, possibly even months later, believe that the pain has gone. But if their pain was uh, being continued or amplified through environmental circumstances, stresses, anxieties or whatever, then I believe it will manifest itself in some other form. So they might have got rid of the pain or my leg hurts or whatever. It may manifest as them being more worried about something else or anxious or stressed about something else. What what are your thoughts on that? I think... Some of the pain techniques I see are really good, and they're really good with dealing with the pain in the instant. So we, you and I, one of the things we've talked about before is that we both agree that a lot, there's a lot of techniques out there, but they're all the same thing, and they just get recycled. And when you've been around, you know, I've been in this world 20 years, when you, when you see a new technique and you think, well, that's just that with a new label on it. Yeah. But some of those techniques, when you strip them back, really do work. So if you're working with someone with pain, doing something like an NLP technique of changing the submodalities is really powerful. It, you, we can't deny, deny that. And I think some of those techniques are really good because they teach people, honestly, some really good tools that get rid of pain. Where my anxiety comes from is if, if I had my hand jammed in the blender, hypnosis isn't going to take that pain away. You know, there needs to be something more complex going on. And, and when I work with people, it's really about looking at the whole person and looking at how some people have to be realistic and they're never going to live a life that's 100% pain-free. So we've got to do some work around looking at how we can navigate their life through that pain. So we can have windows of, of peace or windows of mm-hmm. um, rather than just selling this big dream of I'm just going to, um, you know, wave my magic stopwatch and it's all going to go yeah. away. That, that's where I get 
a little bit uncomfortable with people because then you get into that that mindset that really does worry me when people talk about secondary gain when therapists say oh well that person didn't get better and it wasn't a failing of my system or protocol it was that they had too much to gain from still being bully and i think that's a great um that's a great shield for a therapist to wear, isn't it? Yeah, that's an interesting one because, I mean, unquestionably, there are circumstances where people do have secondary gain, motivation to not get better. Mm. But I agree with you that it, it, it also does appear that sometimes it's used as a, well, oof, it's not my fault it didn't work type thing by therapists. Yeah. I don't think as therapists we always have to be honest and say we can't help everyone. Um, you, you know, the, uh, not everything works for everybody. And, and that's the first honest thing we have to say. But secondary, secondly, if somebody has secondary gain, then they've still reached out to us. They've still asked us for support or help. So we have to look at why they're not improving. And that's where I talk about looking at the whole person rather than just um, just what's going on with the direct pain or their anxiety it's looking at what else is going on in life because mm. if i'm treating an adult with anxiety and they're really really unhappy and they're not feeling any better but then we look and they're working on a zero hour contract and they've got a huge mortgage and they're genuinely losing sleep every night about how they're going to pay the bill yeah so, you know that that's not anxiety that that's genuine fear yeah we've, we've got to be honest about what that is and and help people see the whole thing um rather than just falling back on that thing that hypnosis or NLP is the cure that's going to fix everything. It becomes immediately clear to me the more that we talk that your experience uh, as a social worker has come into your work as uh, a therapist. Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I think that I, as a social worker, you, you're your training tells you to look at the whole person, to look at what's really going on. There's a, an old expression social workers use sometimes, which is you can't do social work in the dark. And what that means is there's no point if you go to somebody's house to help them and they've had the electricity cut off, you yeah. can give them all the therapy and support in the world, but try and get their electric back on first. And sometimes when I'm doing therapy with people, before we start, it's really good to help them clear the decks and look at everything that's going on in their life because if there's all this big stuff going on in the background, we're not going to recover. We're not going to get well if we've got real big genuine fears. Um, so, yeah, definitely impact on where, where I come from in that. And I thought it means I've seen things that other people don't necessarily get to see. Well, you can't hate me because you're on the other side of the screen. So, And it's not personally directed at you, this, but I am aware. And to a degree, I'd even say that I have on occasion said things of this ilk um you know the old joke what is it um not particularly funny but the old joke what's the difference between a social worker and a rottweiler you've got a chance of getting your kids back off a rottweiler there is a stigma to uh with a lot of people to social workers like oh they're sticking the nose in what do they know they haven't been through it themselves now i can see immediately you wouldn't have quite got that um immediate psychological mindset happening in people because let's face it they looked at you and any sane rational individual would have gone hey Stuart's disabled he's been through some shit he's a real human being as opposed to some completely look at me I've got a job and I'm here to interfere type of person I mean what do you make of that I think traditionally since the dawn of time social workers have got a lot of stick um my instincts also to stick up for them, you know. Um, social workers do a really tough job in really tough circumstances, and they're there to sort of mop up what society doesn't want to think about often, you know, the things that we don't want to hear about. And I'm also conscious of what a dangerous job it is. There was a social worker killed um, quite near you recently, and in the same week as there was a police officer killed, and we had lots of press coverage in the police officer that was killed. But the social worker being killed by a client barely made the papers. And I think that's because it's seen as quite a um, controversial um, job. But the thing I always value about my social work training is it really gave me a great understanding of how to get my head around people. 
and have to look for the poorest people and have to see that people aren't just single issue. They're not binary, they're not happy, sad, they're not rich, poor. There's much more complexity goes on with people. That, that's yeah. invaluable, I think. I forget who said it, um, which is very much unlike me because a lot of people in the industry know me as Mr. Walking Encyclopedia, who quotes the books. Who, well, sorry, I've just had a mental block. Anyway, the quote is, um, I know recently, I think it was Tom Nicoli in America or a similar uh, hypnotherapist that posted it. Maybe they originated it. That's why I can't think of the book. But the, the comment was along the lines of, somebody should not be let loose on the general public in a therapeutic context as a hypnotherapist if they wouldn't be skilled enough or um, competent enough to deal with that client's problem without being a hypnotherapist. In other words, I think the, the emphasis was on that all these miracle techniques don't necessarily have enough of the therapy in them. Yeah, I think as well, it's that we, we really have to acknowledge that we're privileged in what we do. We're massively privileged. You know, people come to us and share their most valuable personal experiences and stories. And it can be very easy, I imagine, for therapists to forget how valuable that is to people. And if we can't, if we can't acknowledge that and see a way forwards for people without the hypnosis, if we couldn't say, well, actually, you need to fix A, B, C, D, then there's a kind of reliance on this magical tool that's hypnosis without really fully understanding what's going on for people. So I always encourage social work students that I talk to to really not only um, invest in understanding therapy, but also understand sociology about how society works, how people are disadvantaged, how you are much more likely to develop um, mental health problems if you're in a situation of powerlessness. Understanding all those things is really important mm. than, um, than just sort of thinking you've got the magic tool of therapy. That's why I really liked um, Johan Harry's book, Lost Connections. I don't know whether you've read that, but it looks at how oh. people, in why are we so depressed and anxious in modern society? And it really has very little to do with lack of serotonin or all those things. It's really about structures and how society's built. And I think that that's the one thing I do worry about some therapists with, and that's not hypnotherapists, that's counsellors, psychotherapists, whatever you want to call them, that, that they do need to make sure that they're connected individuals and how their lives work. Yeah, I agree. Um, have you ever read Passages by Gail Shinney or Shinney? Don't think I have, no. Well, for viewers, it's a book and it, she's basically showing, it, it kind of on the page, will have the male viewpoint, the generalised female viewpoint, obviously generalised, and it goes through all the different standard ages, like zero to three, three to seven, seven to teenage years, teenage, through life, uh, and lists what most people will experience generally, as long as they've got a normal background. And it's illustrating how, although people seem all incredibly different, there are some core issues that well, people don't necessarily always admit that, because men, generally speaking, uh, won't admit to depression or how bad things are getting on top of them and stuff. How generally we're all very similar. I think that that's the biggest thing, isn't it? That we've got a lot more in common and we think differentiates us. I've been very lucky in my career that I work with some of the most privileged individuals in the country and I work with some of the most disadvantaged, often on the same day. Um, and, you know, their lives are still really similar. So you can have, you know, as much money or as much opportunity as you could ever imagine. But some of the challenges you're facing will be just the same as people that are struggling to, to yeah. get the end of each way. So we, we, we've touched on the Thompson method, uh, and obviously I, I understand that it's largely about the, well, all manner of things, the environment, the emotional impact of things going on in the environment, the life, the knock-on effects uh, of that. 
are there actually any what therapists watching this because that, that's what i would call almost the psychotherapeutic side of things counseling psychotherapeutic side of things are there any for those that like there yeah. you must I mean, like you mentioned submodalities, which I assume yeah. by that you mean like the old visualization, where's your pain, what direction's it going, change the colour, exactly. spin it a different direction, all that kind of stuff. Are there any other like techniques that you 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 integrate into it? Um, you know one of the things that I really love, and I, and I don't know why I still love it. I really love noisy therapy. Um, okay. I should, you know, when you look at it, and you strip it, you you, you strip it back. Yeah. You think to yourself, how can some saliva on the end of your tongue change what you're doing? But I'm a big believer in try it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And again and again and again. That's probably one of the most impactful things we can deliver with people. And I, I use that now combined with some um, anxiety stop technique. And what we do is we do, um, there's a technique we use in, in the Thompson Method where we get people to tense up. And then they release, which gives a nice relaxed feeling. And then they mm-hmm. go into the noisy therapy of concentrating on the tongue and the saliva. And there's a definite impact on pain with that. But I'd say I would be really, um, I would be the first person to say, well, how can that work? But For anyone that- watching who's not heard of noisy therapy, uh, which was devised by Dr. Angel Esquidero in Valencia in Spain, go on, you can go on YouTube and type in. Dr. Angel Escudero, or Your Life in Their Hands, Noisy Therapy. It's spelled N-O-E-I-S-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y. The basic premise is, because I've used this for years, is that when your body's in fight, um, the fight, flight, freeze or shite situation, so when, when you're in a fear, stressed or anxious mode, your muscles will generally tense up, which is why if you can relax the muscles, like Stuart just said, that's going to help. And that when you're scared or anxious, your mouth tends to get drier. So the opposite of that would be to be relaxed, calm, confident, not scared, not in pain, which would be consistent with your body being relaxed and having a normal I think fiber on tongue situation so there's an anchored physiological response in the body and that's what you're playing with I think there's something there as well about density of nerve endings as well so the end of your tongue is pretty nerve dense so you're putting concentration on an area where sensation's mm-hmm. heightened anyway so there's definitely something in that I think which is distraction uh, yeah. yeah distraction of attention as well so, yeah so, and i think that's the thing with it it's kind of a um it brings together so many elements it's, as i say it's one of the things uh, you know i'm a cynic and, I, and if i pull that apart i think well that shouldn't work mm. and yet really it's one of the most impactful things that, that i use you know beyond um you, you know and that teaching people self-hypnosis and the, some modalities work that, that i've developed over the years for a quick technique that's up there with anything else really excellent so moving over to you yeah i mean your pride of essex award was for your work with adults and children and predominantly as far as i can tell um around anxiety and stress and stuff using your still method so what does still stand for does it stand for something and what's it kind of involve so there's still I get a bit self-indulgent at this point, so forgive me. But um, Go for it, go for it. Anxiety's always been my real specialism. So the work I do with pain, in some ways, is an indulgence because I get to, you know, experiment on myself more than anything. Um, but anxiety's always been my specialism. So going back to when I first qualified as a, a therapist back around 2000, um, anxiety was always the thing that, that really puzzled me. And then, in, and if I jump forward... So, so from when I qualified to 2010, I rarely heard the word anxiety. I was working in Leeds at the time, and people would say to me, you know what, I'm bad with my nerves. And that's what they described it as. When, yeah. we saw, when we saw the internet come along, anxiety became this buzzword. Um, people were self-identifying with anxiety. And then about five or six years ago, I noticed this real marked tipping point with my clients where my average age of my clients started to drop 
queue about five or six years ago, that's what to my client majority have been under 18. And I began to see this this big surge in anxious children. Mm -hmm. And when I started to look at why that was, there was so much going on. So I decided to spend a little bit of time creating something that would help parents, teachers, carers be able to take children through um, out of anxiety, quite simply. So I called it the still method, and it stands for stop, talk, imagine, listen, learn. So the, stop, so the stop is about how do you stop that horrible feeling? How do you talk about it differently? The imagine element is a therapeutic element. The listen element is about hearing what your body's saying, changing how it feels in that state. And then learn is developing technique and a strategy so that you can deal with your own anxiety moving forwards. It borrows, I guess, the science behind it is CBT. You know that if you understand what's making you anxious, and you move towards it instead of running away from it, you will recover. But where the thing I'm most excited about with the film method is that we've been able to create a system that actually, when taught correctly, anyone can follow. So people often misunderstand the stomach and think it's it's going to be one technique. It's going to be you know some some tapping or you mm -hmm. know heart movements or something like that. But actually, it's not. It's it's a. You can, I suppose you could call it a protocol if you want to, but I'm a bit uncomfortable with that word it's actually a system it's a, it's a system that people need to follow and if they follow that system they will help children move on from it so we started off i started off what probably about three years ago now doing some workshops for parents and teachers using it and then this year we really upped the pace of them so we've done a lot more of them we've really honed it down so we started working with um teachers pastoral leads in schools um Sure. and that kind of thing and then in the summer of this year I started training um, still method coaches and what was different about the still method coaches is I didn't go to the usual individual that we would go through in therapy so I didn't want to train necessarily loads of therapists to do this what I wanted to train was coaches so people came with this with a position of let's help you move forward through it so okay. I train now understand the still method they really understand anxiety but they understand how they, they follow this system with young people they can move them through it so they have a system where they're running after school clubs or holiday clubs but they're also doing one-to-one -one work as well but it's much more about following the system and moving the children on and actually it's taken on its own legs really it's doing really well we've got 12 coaches at the moment around the uk um they're already in quite a few schools and it's it, it's set to grow and I've already been approached by um, schools in Australia. We've got somebody due to start with a soon in Sweden. Um, where this sound, I'm not taking the piss when I say this. You might have already you might have already considered this genuinely because you kind of you're proving it works and it's already growing in, yeah. in this fashion. Um, and people who are not in England, you might have to do a Google or YouTube search to see what the hell I'm on about. But is it, you thought, this is the kind of thing I could see genuinely being pitched to Dragon's Den for expansion, franchising, and them actually being interested in it and investing. Um, it's funny, I actually um, had a mentoring session with Rachel Elnor from Dragon's Den. All right. Just before Christmas to, uh, to just check that I wasn't going crazy. And, you know, yeah. like, that we could see this expanding the way she was. And actually, everyone that we talked about is really excited about how it can move on and how it can grow. And I think it's important that we don't grow it too fast, that, mm. we, that we learn from what's happening. So I'm sure that some of the coaches over the next 12 months are going to come back to me and say, you know what, you know what we do in session three? That isn't the best session. Let's change it and build it up. And I'm really open to doing that. So, yeah, I really want to see growth. But what I don't want to see is, um, you, you know, greed. I don't want to grow it so rapidly that we miss the whole point of it. Because... The best bit of the still method is actually seeing change. You know that I am really privileged that I get to see children every day who sort of come in hiding under their jumper, coats over their head, hoodies on, not talking into them, being really brave, tough kids, and that and that's a bit I really don't want to ever lose. Excellent. So before I kind of try and pick your brains, Walter, give us more of an insight and the kind of things you might end up doing within a. a, a 
sessions with people yeah. using the still method. Obviously, a lot of it, you do do it with adults, but largely it's the kids, it's the... It's you predominantly know, children, yeah, definitely. Predominantly. Um, working with kids, a lot of therapists are, 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 are kind of put off by that because there's all different, there's all these safeguarding issues these days. Uh, it's different around the world, but I can only talk in terms of England. If you're in different countries, check out your own laws and stuff. But we have the, you know... Um, DBS, as yeah. it's now it used to be Criminal Records Bureau checks, and I mean, what considerations are there working with kids? Uh, do, do you film sessions, for example, or um, do you insist on there being someone in the room? I never work one to one with children. I always involve mum, dad, or a carer, so it in some ways alleviates that risk because you never you're never on your own, um, and that uh, that's really important, I think, for the child and for, Do you uh, think that sometimes there might be things that the child wants to offload, but they they can't because they don't want to offload it in front of said parent? Or I think that's something then that would be addressed in counselling rather than in something which is an anxiety approach. There are times when um, we come across things, but really, if we're realistic, most of what we do in the film method ends up being delivered by the parent to some degree anyway. Okay. We're talking about not rescuing children, about building their capacity and their resilience. And actually, mum and dad are really the people that are going to be dealing with that and, and delivering it on a day-to-day basis. So it does end up often being a whole family approach. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if you're being slightly diplomatic here, because I think um, if we look at... Um, Mental block, come on, come back to you, Alex. Uh, Virginia Satire and Fritz Pearls um, did family therapy stuff and then yeah. there's psychodynamic therapy and there's all different titles, but the stuff that looks at the family structure. Now, I know it isn't all the time. In this day and age now, stuff like social media bullying can cause anxiety for kids and all that, but a lot, I imagine, still, as it always has done, uh, comes down to the the family environment and how things are dealt with. Are you uh, on some level, albeit maybe subliminally, covertly, retraining the parent in the way to deal with things to help the child? Um, it's not subliminally. It's totally open. Oh, I, right, okay. when, when I run my workshops, I always start by saying none of us are perfect. None of us get it right. You've got you've got kid, you've got a daughter same age as one of mine um we don't get it right all the time do we we send them off to school sometimes i think oh god why did i say that or why did i miss that cue or why did i and equally why did i let you get away with that why didn't i deal with that as it presented what i think is unique about children now is they're growing up with an, in a world that's so different to what we grew up in so parents are navigating things that we our parents didn't have to navigate they're bombarded with information digitally as parents. They're working much harder than most families. Both parents are working. Um, so that there's different pressures that come from that. But also we're bombarded with information about mental health, about how to support children. So a lot of the time the parents that I work with are quite open in saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should be stronger, weaker, kinder, tougher. And actually the still method gives them a a routine of how to do that of how to expose your child to um the thing that scares them but in a safe way that means they can develop and move on so yeah definitely the whole family approach pick up on that phrase because i like that expose your children to the things that scare them but in a safe way yeah i, I mean that immediately jumps out to me as a sentence that sounds because, you know, in our, in, in our day and age, and I, I, I know to a degree it was perhaps a little bit different uh, for you, Stuart, because I'm guessing your mum was fearful of you breaking a bone. Or, but actually, in a way, having brittle bones is a good metaphor for um, how I talk about exposing risk. So I, I went to a mainstream school. Now, oh. if we look at that, as a as exposure to risk pretty dangerous you know uh, 
a mainstream school, you've got this little delicate kid. There's a risk there, isn't there? So as a parent, you're making a decision. Do I keep him at home, invest in lots of bubble wrap, keep him in the cupboard, <laughs> or do I um, expose him to the thing that's risky? And actually, um, it's exposing to the thing that's risky that, that makes the person stronger. And to be self-indulgent, as I mentioned, I've got brittle bone disease. There's been some research done into brittle bone disease, why there are so many high-profile people with brittle bones. And there was, a, there was an urban myth doing the rounds um, in the 90s that people with brittle bone disease were more outgoing or there was something to do with the genes or the structure that made them mm-hmm. more outgoing. But actually, what research has shown now, it isn't. It's that people with brittle bones are constantly being exposed to danger and risk. So their brain becomes more robust, more resilient, and more inclined to do, um, to expose themselves and do things that are slightly more dangerous. And if you look around the media, if you look at actors, um, disabled actors, the vast majority of them appear to have brittle bone disease. And I, and I think that's really because they're exposed to danger from an early age. So... And in our industry, we've been some big names. You know, I, um, Sean Stevenson was a big name in life coaching up until he died recently. And, it, and it's that, it's the, the fact that you're exposed to risk all the time. You become stronger and stronger. And, you know, your, your little girl like mine does, um, you know, performing arts and that kind of thing. And I'm sure there's times she's been a bit nervous or a bit scared or not wanting to go on stage. Um, she, and, you know, but I think we're probably if, more nervous for her. <laughs> but if you said to her, and I've seen this happen, if you'd said to her before she went on stage, oh, Ashley, are you going to be all right? Are you worried? Are you nervous? You're planting that seed, aren't you? But if you say to her, you're going to be great, just get on with it, do it, then she builds on that. So it's and so mm. what we're looking at with the still method really is about parents encouraging their children to just do that thing that scares them a little bit. And it's not that simple. There's more there than that. But it's a big part of it. You know, if you're scared of going swimming, then what you need to do is slowly expose yourself to a swimming pool. Do you think as a society, uh, we've become more, well, generally from a parental position, more scared full stop? Because, you know, back in the day when I was young, people, you know, the next door neighbour left the front door open, for Christ's sake. Um, you know, kids would be let to go out and play and they'd go several streets away. And it, 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 and I'm talking like, you know, when the six and seven and, you know, it won't be till it was going dark that the parent would shout out the door, come in, tea's ready. And, and kids so much on social media now but i think part of that is because they're not allowed to go out because there's nothing for them to do or people are too scared they're going to get abducted or it's a perfect storm really isn't it because when we were kids you did go out and you roamed but actually there was more of a um we lived in communities more so if i'd been out and i'd been up to no good then a neighbor would have said i've seen your steward up to no good now it's unlikely that they know who the child is. They don't know who to come to. So the whole community isn't raising children anymore. So that's definitely had an impact on things. But I also think parents now are fed so much information. They don't know whether they're doing right or wrong. So your child wakes up in the night. Do you leave it to cry? Do you go to it? Your child is scared of school. Do you keep them off school? Or do you send them? And you can look in so many different places and see so many different pieces of information that we feel often as parents that were failing constantly. And then I other, then the other thing I really jumped out at me is that everyone now feels really guilty if their child is really, really happy all of the time. So mm. they believe that we need to be looking for happiness. But actually, people are fine. People don't need to chase happiness. They need to avoid the absence of happiness. So if you look at your life and the times that you look back on that were the best, they weren't the times you were elated, happy, doing great things. They were the times when you were just okay. But the times that were worst in your life were when there was a void and there was a relapse of happiness. And what we've created, I think, is a kind of guilt in parents that they must give their child the most amazing experiences every day. And that the child can never be a little bit sadder and never a little bit worried. 
And I think that some of what we have to do is reassure people that it's okay to go to bed being told off, or it's okay not to have had the best day ever, and actually you will get over it. It's one of the jokes I make when I work with teenagers is that I always wish that someone would tell every teenager that there is going to be a day in your life when you go to school and everybody's not going to like you and you're not going to know what you've done wrong and you're going to be unpopular and everyone's going to be really cross with you or all your friends are going to fall out with you. But you know, if you get through that day, tomorrow it will be somebody else. But actually, we're not sharing that anymore. We're, we're telling people that when something bad happens, perhaps it's something greater and something bigger. So for me, it's about giving parents confidence to just say, if you do this, this will happen. Um, rather than labelling every child with really serious uh, issues and, and obsession, and we want to grow resilience and robustness in our children. Excellent. So, I mean, it's the whole... I hate to use the wanky therapeutic, but it's the whole family dynamic, ecologically speaking. Yeah. You're dealing with the whole, with what yeah. you're doing with the uh, still method. So you're dealing with the emotions, you're dealing with the environment, you're dealing with the parents' reaction to the child and vice versa. I mean, it literally sounds like it's covering the whole. Yeah, and I think what, what took the time, though, is to find techniques that did that. So, you know, using predominantly NLP, um, as a way of changing some of those dynamics, really. So finding out what the issue is with the child. If we've got a recurring thought or a recurring memory, how can we use NLP to shift that recurring thought? Or if they've got a phobic response to a particular thing, what's the best technique we can show them to um, to alleviate that phobic response? But it's no good leaving the phobic response if we then don't give them the, the strength to test it. You've been a therapist for a long time. How frustrating is it when you say to someone, right, go away and test that thing now. Go and see if you're still scared of going to theme parks or whatever it is, and then they come back to you and go, I haven't had the chance to go. Mm. Well, I don't know whether it's working. You know, so we just don't have to start exposing them to the thing as well and showing them how to be brave enough to do what scares them. And obviously, the sooner that they do that, the more that's giving them validation and proof that, this process is, is working for them and it's more likely to be... If you can build confidence in one area, you, your confidence grows in another, doesn't it? If you're having a really good experience, that knocks on to the rest of your day. So if you've got, if I've got a child that's refusing school and we get them into school, there's a really good chance that the confidence is going to grow when they're at school because they've overcome something that scared them and they've beaten that. And I often say, you know, if you can beat this fear when you're five, six, seven, eight, think how brave you're going to be at 14, 15. Mm. You're going to have a real resilience built in that your peers don't always have. Now, you mentioned before that you well, certainly in the Thompson method, but I'm, I'm guessing you probably do by the sound of it, elements of uh, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, yeah. within this as well. Now, controversially, I'm going to throw out there I've said for years that CBT stands not for cognitive behavioural therapy, but complete bullshit or complete bollocks therapy. Um, and, and the reason I've said that is because, frankly, 99% of CBT therapists I've ever encountered are the most insecure, screwed up, need, they're the ones who need therapy, individuals I've ever encountered. And <laughs> you're, you clearly don't fall into that category, and anyone watching this will uh, have already worked that one out. Um, and, do you think CBT is just a label, isn't it? A lot of people are bought off by it because the studies show that it doesn't really work, CBT as such. No, I think the studies you're talking about show that the way it's delivered doesn't work. So, Well, that's what I was getting at. I believe that your attitude and everything you've been talking about uh, and looking at the with your attitude, it would work, but the do, way it's generally taught, it wouldn't. We do, we do CBT on ourselves all the time without realising it. So... If you, uh, uh, you know, if there's something that you're not quite sure about doing, you build up your resilience to do it. So if you're, um, if you want to learn to walk a tightrope, you don't set the tightrope at 20 feet in the air. You set it no. a few inches off the ground and you build your resilience and you build your bravery. And if, if you've got across the rope when it's a few inches up, then you're going to be less anxious when you lift it. So if you are interested, and that's CBT, it's exposing yourself to what scares you in a really structured 
um, careful work. Where I would criticise CBT is that the way it's delivered within, particularly within the NHS, where it's delivered on a telephone by um, quite often practitioners that are restricted in what they can do, that can't be as creative as they want, because if you're just using forms and filling in boxes, what if there isn't a box for that? Or I had a client recently who'd been, who had some issues with not being able to sleep alone at night, but also had some issues about how she kept the bedroom tidy. But the CBT therapist said we can only work on one at a time. Well, if you're feeding your anxiety in one area, you've got to tackle the whole thing. So I don't think there's a crit for me, there isn't a criticism of the science of CBT because it's a science of how humans work. I think it's about, it's the criticism of, of most therapy that's offered by NHS and things that it's time limited, it's not bespoke, it's not created for certain individual. So then you end up with a brand being tainted. People think, oh, well, I have CBT and it didn't work for me. Yeah. And that's where we are now, I think. See, it's the other element that, 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 that and well, it's very much NHS fied in. I'm sorry to people involved in the NHS, but you know, it's sorry, it, it goes on. You know, the, the, the little, I think it's standard, isn't it? Minimum of six sessions, but it can be, if, if they've got the local funding, then quite often it's 12 sessions that they, whatever your issue is, yeah, we'll put you in for the six or 12 sessions, depending on what funding they've got. And which immediately is like, well, hang on a minute, that's before you even know anything really about the patient, the client. And then at the end of the sessions, well, that's it, funding time's up. Mm. Now, two criticisms of that. One, a lot of people probably don't even need six or 12 sessions. And you're giving them a negative suggestion by dragging it out. And therapists like yourself out there who can get them the result they want a damn sight quicker than that. Or the other is there's some people that in that context would need longer if they've had severe, you know. I think that's that one size fits all approach, isn't it? Mm. Uh, you, you know, when when I really I'm most critical when therapists do too many things. So we all know therapists who do a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of the other. And I'm sure they're very competent. But if that was me, I would worry that I couldn't become an expert in one thing. I find it challenging enough to make sure that I'm on the ball and reading everything that's important to know about anxiety now. But if I was also going to be doing um, a bit of something else, a bit of something else, how would I maintain myself an expert? And I think that when you have a protocol like CBT, there's the danger that it just becomes built for Joe Average. But we never know Joe Average, do we? He's not, mm. never had an average client. They're all, they all come with some pretty unique things that we've got to deal with. And, and CBT, when it's delivered by the state, can't be like that. It's got to be sort of generic and fixed. And that's where it fails a lot of people. And I think, I mean, in a roundabout way, I'd sum that up, and I agree with you entirely. I'd sum it up as a large importance of what you're doing with clients it isn't just the techniques, it's you as the therapist. I think I, if you ask me honestly, if I'd come into my industry and just trained as a hypnotherapist and had no other background, I'm not sure how I'd ever, ever get results. I'm not, and that's not criticism of the people. Maybe that's me, maybe I needed more. But mm -hmm. for me, it was the other things I already knew that I'd learned through social work, through study, studying therapy and psychology. That means that the hypnosis are the tools that let me fix it. Yeah. But they're not, you know, it's like being a plumber. I need to know how the boiler works and the spanner that I buy and the, the nice bit of kit that allows me to do the job nicely and efficiently. But underneath that, I need to know how that boiler works. And I think that perhaps is where some therapy costs let people down because they don't do, they don't teach them the plumbing. They just teach them how to use the tools. Yeah, very, very, very good point. Um, now, we mentioned the NHS in a perceptively negative. Yeah. From now with CBT. But I'm sure that, that, that there are definitely positive Sides well, well, while we still have an NHS, that is. Um, but I see that you've been fortunate enough you, that you do get um referrals from medical 
general practitioners, doctors and NHS referrals. How did you go about that? Because I know there's a lot of therapists out there that go, oh, how how do you get doctors referrals? And I think there's two things. I think NHS referrals are now direct funded NHS referrals or like entity. They're really hard to get. Mm -hmm. So 10 years ago, I had an NHS provider number. Your GP could say, I know this person, send them to you. And there would be a funding agreed in advance. Getting that sort of relationship is really hard now because more often than not, um, treatments in the mental health sphere are block funded. So you end up with one contractor for your particular borough. So that is harder to do, but they're still out there. People can make a, um, a specialist case for getting that. Where more of my NHS work now comes from isn't that it's NHS funded. It's the fact that I've made relationships with GPs, with um, professionals, and I would say to anyone, if you're getting results, you need to be confident in sharing them with GPs and with um, the wider public, not just saying, um, not not just relying on pure word of mouth. You actually need to talk about what you're achieving. So one of the things I do with some of the young people I work with is share what we're doing with the school. Mm-hmm. share what we're doing with the GP so they're aware of the work we're doing and the outcome we've got as well and that way if you get a good result then the GP is really likely to turn around and say gosh you're going through a really tough time a referral to CAMS or to the mental health is going to take you x number of months but a few of my patients have seen this person go in talk to them but that's where your yeah. results need to speak for themselves and you need to be confident that, you, that you're taking on the right things and that means sometimes saying no, sometimes saying this person's too complex for the sort of therapy we're offering or tackling therapy and this won't be too, too costly. But you've got to be open. So one of the things I did when I ran some of my local still method coaches was to invite some GPs along. So I wrote uh-huh. practices and said, you can come along for free if you want. This is what a normal ticket costs. But if you're interested in young people and mental health, come along. And that, that worked really well. We had quite a handful of GPs at both the ones that were in Colchester and the one that was in Chamsford, a few as well. But it's meant that referrals come through that source because you're building trust and GPs are humans. So quite a few of them had their children that were dealing with stuff. So we, we got quite a nice um, way that way. But I think if, you, if you're a new therapist and you're looking at getting work through the NHS, then focus on your results first. Make sure that you actually are getting people well. And yeah. when you know that, then share that. Share that with professionals. Say to families, do you mind me writing to your GP just to let them know what we've done? And most families, if it's been really successful, want their GP to know because they want them to know what worked for their child. So, yeah. No, so. excellent advice. And obviously there's some things where um, maybe not what we've talked about, but there's some things where if somebody was on, say, a drug dependency, mm. Some things where you would be insisting that their doctor is aware that they're seeing you anyway, just from a duty of care point of view. Yeah. But I, I think if you can get the clients to uh, agree to let you contact the doctors, then the doctor, if you, you're in a geographic area over a period of time seeing clients, that doctor is going to get, end up getting a number of letters off you about different patients over a period of time. And after a while, it's surely going to end up they're going to see those patients at some point and mention it and the patient's going to go hey yeah it's worked for me and that's going to do the sales job for you isn't it to the doctor ultimately and i think it's about um putting in the work you know earning your stripes you can't just jump in and you know be be selling out your practice overnight you've got to actually be you know what i want to see is what where's where's the social proof where are we seeing that you're getting these results and when people start being brave enough to share that that's when the referrals will come in definitely you know i don't advertise anything like that I'm, if there should be some wood around to touch but, but i just yeah. said, bring the work that comes in just by being confident in what i'm doing excellent so i'm just looking at my notes list here um social work Oh, yeah, I've got a sentence here with a note. Online Skype sessions, because I notice on your uh, website, it, it mentions, obviously, the world is your lobster, so to speak. Yeah. You know, the world we live in. Um, 
Have you got any advice? Because some therapists are scared of the idea of doing Skype or Zoom online sessions because of things like, well, what happens if there's a power cut? What happens if somebody loses their internet signal and, you know, they're stuck in trance? Well, I know it sounds that, but I, I've heard these yeah. things. What, what advice would you give to therapists out there who are perhaps limiting their potential marketplace by not offering these? I think that it's expected these days. So I have a lot of clients who will touch base with me. They'll come in and do therapy, but they might be working in Singapore next weekend or they might be traveling. They want to be able to still have that relationship with you and um, have that ability to touch base by using Skype. But also, um, if you've had a really successful client in... Um, so for me, if I'm at some really successful in Essex, and they might have a nephew that lives in Glasgow, mm -hmm. then you've really got to be willing, or you'd be silly not to, to find a way of delivering what you do online. And I think what I would say is don't jump into that. Don't think that structuring a session of Skype is the same as structuring one thing, but it is different. It's harder to build rapport um, when you're not in the same room with someone, but it can be done, but you need to practice it. I don't tend so much these days to go in for big, deep grants work as I would have done 10 years ago. Um, so I don't have that worry of people being stuck in trance. Also, I genuinely just don't believe it can happen. I think no, I, I genuinely, it, it wouldn't. The worst they do is fall asleep. go into a normal kip and wake up in half an hour or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it was that easy, then you know it, our job wouldn't be as hard as it is sometimes, would it? Um, so I don't have that worry. And the same as a power cut or anything else. And, you know, we, we're all, we've all been in the game long enough to know that you've had sessions interrupted and people come out of the trance. You know, having people knock at the door, mm. fire alarms. We've had it all. You, you know, I've never seen anyone get stuck. I've had some people that are harder to bring out than others because they're just too comfy. But I don't believe anyone there's any great risk of doing Skype work. But it's like anything. You've got to be confident when you deliver it. And, uh, and have a plan, not just dive into it. In terms of them coming out of it, um, that very rare, rare, it, used, it happened years ago, but it very rarely happened. I've never encountered it, even with fire engines, fire alarms. I've had to tell clients to wake up just because of the one sentence that I use at the end of the induction. Any noises you hear whatsoever will merely serve as a sign and a signal to help you relax more completely. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? That you, I mean, I think that people can um, be too magical in the belief of what they're creating. Because actually what you're creating is an in-depth relaxation. Mm. And you're not doing any great magic spell on anyone. So most people will just stay in a comfortable, relaxed state. As long as they trust you, the therapist. Yeah. And it's about, I think it's about... As long as you've got their trust and you spend time getting that trust with them, then they'll stay in trance, whatever happens, because they want it. They're, they're paying for your skill and they'll trust in what you're, what you're doing. Um, if they do come out, if something happens, then you, know, you just take them back. I think... It's about being just relaxed in what you do. And I think some of that just comes with experience, doesn't it? The longer you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah. Unfortunately, time is fast running out on us. And, um, you know, people who watch this, I suggest, like I say this every week, but I really do mean it, that you should watch this again, but with a piece of paper and a pen and take notes. Because there's a lot, there's been a lot of just valuable content that if you pay attention and take notes you'll realize bloody hell there's a lot of importance and a lot of unique insights that Stuart's got because of his position and yes I'm blatantly saying that he's had a major advantage by being disabled because it's enabled him to see things from a viewpoint that perhaps you or I wouldn't normally um so, so I, I do think that that's given you a, a, an insight and an advantage, especially with the pain stuff like you mentioned before, go back and watch that a bit. Take notes. Because if you're going to take notes about how to deal with pain, take them from somebody who's bloody dealt with pain. 
regularly, you know. In the same way, if you're going to help kids or adults with anxiety issues, go to someone who, who is an expert in that field. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at dealing, you know, treating kids or you, you, you want to get more into anxiety, then I would wholeheartedly recommend you seek out Stuart. He's going to tell you his website and stuff in a minute. And, uh, you know, go on one of his live courses or maybe in the future he'll release a home study version, a distance interactive online version as well. But before he tells you his website, before we bring this week's episode to the close, I'm going to ask you at the question I ask pretty much everybody each week. And that is if a complete newbie to the industry. And it's surprising, although I'm asking it from the point of view of if a complete newbie who knew nothing about hypnotherapy came to you and said, I want to learn to be a hypnotherapist. Some of the answers we've been getting, frankly, have been, I'd say, applicable to people who have been in the industry for a while. So what would your top three tips be to somebody who is wanting to get into hypnotherapy, whether that's how they go about learning or it's how they go about growing the business? It doesn't matter. What would your top three tips be? Um, First of all, make sure you understand people. Study psychology. Read everything you can about how human beings function. Because until you've got that, you're just clutching at tools and techniques. Secondly, because of the way the industry is set up in the UK, doing accredited course, because people need, we still live in a world where people like to see accreditations and certificates, but don't believe that you're going to get everything you need on that accredited course. I don't believe most of the accredited courses in the UK give you everything you need. Then I learned as much as I did on my accredited course about how to hypnotise someone. Um, I can't say I learned that much about it. I probably learned more um, about how to use hypnosis and stuff by buying your DVDs in 2000. They were much more honest and insightful than what I got Thank from you. a hypnosis course. And I think, you know, that, that thing about stripping things down to what really works was what really got to me. And the third thing I would say, if you're building your practice, then don't be a jack of all trades because that's disingenuous. Yeah. Find the thing. I see a lot on hypnosis pages, people saying, oh, how can I find my niche? How can I find my niche? If you're looking, you haven't found it yet. You mm. need to find the thing that really interests you, that appeals to you, that gets under your skin, and that will be your niche. And once you've found that, then you need to become an expert. Something you're passionate about. Yeah, totally. Because you're going to be doing the same thing every day for the next 30 years, and you've got to really feel like you care about it. So... And that passion's got to be what's real to you. So pick the thing that you really, really love, really, really care about it, and just learn it and speak to people. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Excellent advice. Thank you, Sure. Can you please tell everyone where to look for your social media channels, your website, so they can get in contact and seek out your courses? So you can find me online at stuarthypnotist.com, and you can find me on social media at stuarthypnotist. And that you can find out about the still method at www.thestillmethod.co.uk. Excellent. I, there will be at least one, probably all of those links below this video when it goes live as well. So it's easy for you. Not saying you're lazy viewers, but it will make it easy for you. So thank you very much indeed, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure. And everyone at home, watch this again. Take notes. You've got a full week until the next episode. Or maybe you won't, because this probably will be on in launch week, in which case you've got 24 hours. Who knows? But for now, I'm Jonathan Rowell. Thanks again, Stuart. And Thanks, Alex. See, you, see you next week on the show.